0: Thank you for listening to the Sharing Church Podcast. If you would like to know more about the church, please visit us at SharingChurch.com. Now we hope you learn from and enjoy today's message. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and grab them and turn to Ruth chapter 3. You can find it on your device. I'll give you some time to get there. Again, there's no shame in the table of contents. Feel free to do that. Ruth chapter 3, we're in this series called Among the Grain, where we're studying through the book of Ruth. And like I said at the beginning of the service, I have thoroughly enjoyed it. I have not studied Ruth like this ever. And so I've really enjoyed it. It's been challenging in a lot of different ways, ways that John wasn't necessarily as challenging, because I knew a lot of that. I knew a lot of those stories. This has been Uh, challenging for me, but I've really enjoyed it. I hope you have as well. For further study, because we don't want to be a church that just gives a lecture and gives a speech. We want to be a church of disciple-making pastors, people that are walking alongside of you in your journey of knowing Jesus. We created some resources for you. It'll come up on the screen. Uh, You can go to our website, SharonChurch.com, and there's a link there on that homepage that'll take you to a whole website full of resources. We've added a little bit to that. I um, want to invite you to that. There are articles to read, books you can order to read, videos to watch. Uh, this, is, this is a journey of studying the Word of God. Uh, the Bible, is, it's like meditation literature. You can't just read it like you would read uh, an article on your phone. This is something you have to dig into and, and let it marinate a bit before it gets into you, that the flavor of the Word of God might be in you. There's ways for you to do that. Uh, we also have a reading plan that we, can, we text out to you. So if you want to sign up for the reading plan, you can text Ruth uh, to this number, 678-671-5440. So you can jump in there. You get a text every morning with a passage to read and a way to um, study that. So I want to invite you into that. We have uh, about 80 people doing that with us right now, which is awesome. I love that. I love that 80 of us are reading the same pas- passages or verses every day and trying to figure it out together. I'm, I'm excited about it. We'll be in Ruth chapter three. Um, If you've read ahead and you know this part of Ruth, Ruth chapter three, this could go a lot of different ways as we get through. You're going to understand what I'm saying. This could go a lot of different ways. Uh, I think the Lord has led me to where I I think we need to be today. And so I'm going to try to teach it in that way. Uh, But again, a lot of different places to go with this passage. And I want to be careful um, with how we handle it. This whole book of Ruth is about the providence of God. In the word providence, you see the word provide. It's about how God provides. But what we've said throughout this series is a quote from A.W. Tozer, who says that what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. However you view God... Um, view him as creator, as God, as sovereign and powerful, if you view him as good, as creator, or if you view him as a a dictator, if you view him um, as someone who's just out to get you, one who uh, pursues justice at all costs, it affects the way that you live your life. And for those who aren't following Jesus, uh, how they view the Lord affects how they live their lives. And for us inside of the faith, it's true for us as well. And so we've seen that. When we think about the providence of God, what we're saying is the providence of God is his continued care, governance and care over all of his creation. This is the providence of God. Inside the word providence, you see the word provide. It's how he provides for us. But he hasn't just set the world in motion and then step back and then one day he'll return to take back what is his He has created the world, and he is intimately involved in every detail of our lives. I mean, every detail of our lives, which is why it's so important how we view God, because if if we view him incorrectly, we see the circumstances of our lives incorrectly, and then that spirals us then into seeing God incorrectly, more incorrectly, which takes us into viewing our circumstances more incorrectly, which is the problem for us um, in the book of Ruth, which happens in the time of the Judges. The book that comes before Ruth is called Judges. It was a time when there were no kings in Israel. There were no kings leading God's people. Uh, God would appoint judges to help uh, redeem his people, to uh, take them out of oppression. The people of God would get lazy in times of peace, and like we do, and so they would fall into deeper sin. God would send a new judge, and this would be a cycle that happened over and over and over again because they misconstrued who God was and saw their circumstances differently than they should have. But inside of that story is where we find the book of Ruth. Ruth is the daughter-in-law of a woman named Naomi. Naomi was married to a man named Elimelech. Elimelech and Naomi lived in Bethlehem, that Bethlehem, in the promised land uh, that God had given to his people when he rescued them from slavery in Egypt. He gave them this promised land. They lived in Bethlehem, but there was a famine in Bethlehem. So they ran to uh, an area called Moab. We'll learn more about Moab in a bit, but Moab is not full of godly people. Uh, Moab is a place where you don't want to take your children, Uh, so it's a lot like Butts County. And so that's where I'm just kidding, but that's where um, that's where uh, they ran to Moab, and in Moab, um, Elimelech and Naomi and their two sons, the two sons meet women, Moabite women, and Moabite women don't have the most sparkling of reputation, uh, but they marry two Moabite women. Uh, Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, passes away, and then later her two sons pass away, which leaves Naomi in a foreign land with two foreign daughters-in-law. She hears that there's food back in Bethlehem, so she wants to make the journey back to Bethlehem. She needs two things. She needs food and she needs family. So she wants to make the journey back. The daughters-in-law say, we'll go with you. She says, don't go with me because you'll never, uh, you'll never find a husband You'll never meet anyone. Stay here. Stay under your parents until you meet someone, and then you can have a long, flourishing life that I apparently will never have. So one daughter-in-law, Orpah, says, all right, I'll stay here. But then Ruth, whose name means friend or friendly, says, I'm not going anywhere. For your people are my people. Where you, la- where you lodge, I will lodge. Where you stay, I will stay. The God that you worship, I will worship. I'm going with you. So she comes all the way back to Bethlehem, um, There's something in place through scripture uh, of a kinsman redeemer, someone who is a closest of kin inside of your family, really inside of your clan, so a group of families. And that person is responsible for the care of anyone going through hard times. It could be financial, it could be relational, whatever it is, that person is responsible. They come back to Bethlehem and Naomi knows there's someone out there, someones, more than one out there who will care for us. Um, Author Ruth tells us that, as luck would have it, or as it happened, Ruth went to work in a field of a man named Boaz, who is a kinsman redeemer, who is the closest one of the closest relatives of Naomi, worked for him, uh, and it seems like things are looking up. At the end of Ruth chapter 2, it had been a little while, Ruth had been serving in this field, taking from the edges of the field, taking the corners of the field of Boaz's grain field, his barley field. And what we find in the end of Ruth chapter two, this is important for us, that she, Ruth, kept close to the young women of Boaz, the ones who were out there and gleaning and reaping the harvest. Gleaning until the end of the barley and wheat harvests. And she lived with her mother-in-law. If you're paying attention, the end of each chapter kind of leaves us wanting more. It, it gives us something. At the end of chapter two, what we've learned is Ruth has been in this field of Boaz, his grain field. She, Been there for the whole season of harvest, which is about three months. But it's coming to the end of the barley and wheat harvest. And so we've seen uh, Naomi and Ruth come back empty from Moab, and God is providing for them. And He's providing grains, providing food, so He's met that need, but they still have a need for family. Particularly in this time, the women need uh, someone to care for them to be their providential um, provider. They still need that. And that's where we pick up in Ruth chapter three. Now, pay attention. I wanna say a few things off the top. One is this, that our culture um, has become so sexualized in that we can't help but to read inappropriate things into appropriate texts. So um, every love story that we watch, every movie you watch, um, whatever it is, there's always a moment in which things get um, hot and heavy, right? There's a moment in which, uh, there's kids in here. There are moments in which things get to a point where um, carnal instincts take over. Does that make sense? And so things then happen and whatever. What happens for us now is that we, in our culture, we read those types of things. We read that behavior even into some of our more sacred texts. And listen, there have been plenty of sermons and series and books written on the book of Ruth that take that angle, and I think that's a shame because I think we're missing the point. And there's things that are happening underneath this. So that's one thing I want to say is there's one way to take this that I think is inappropriate, that I think takes it a place that um, isn't meant to be taken, particularly in the context of Scripture. Secondly, um, there's a thing for us in that uh, As followers of Jesus, we've been given responsibility to carry his name. We've been given what Paul calls the ministry of reconciliation. We are his ambassadors. But there's a fine line uh, between being an ambassador of God and thinking you are God. There's a difference. And so I want to walk that line tenderly here this morning. So pay attention. Ruth chapter three, I want to read through it. I want to put some pieces together. Then I want to go back into it and really pull apart, pull out what I think God has for us this morning. Ruth chapter three, verse one. They've been there for three months. Naomi, her mother-in-law, Ruth's mother-in-law, said to her, said to Ruth, my daughter, should I not seek rest for you? Circle that word rest. We're going to come back to it. Should I not seek rest for you? that it may be well with you. This word rest means security. So she's saying, you've come back with me. Uh, Shouldn't I plan security for you in your future? Essentially, shouldn't I arrange a marriage, arrange a kinsman redeemer for you? Shouldn't I arrange a way for you to be provided for, that it may be well with you? Verse 2, she asks another hypothetical question. Is not Boaz our relative, our kinsman redeemer, with whose young women you were? You see, tonight he is winnowing barley at the threshing floor. Boaz owns this field of grain, barley, and he owns this field. And as part of his uh, responsibilities, he has to make sure that at the end of the harvest, that the wheat is separated from the chaff, that the wheat is separated from the stalk or the stem. So they would employ some of their people to winnow uh, the wheat harvest. So what that meant is they would come to what's called the threshing floor, an area inside uh, the field most likely. It had been uh, taken down, all the wheat had been taken down. It had been tamped down. Uh, They would put something over it to make sure that no other grass or grain would grow up, and it would just be a hard floor, usually in the shape of a circle or an oval, um, probably like a stone retaining wall around it. This would be the threshing floor. On the threshing floor, the servants of the field would come, and they would take the harvest. They would take what had been gathered, and at the end of the day, when the winds of of the hot day were now coming through to cool it off and make it evening, they would take uh, the bundles of grain or of barley, And they would throw it in the air to catch the wind. And the wheat would fall and uh, the chaff would would go away. This is how they separated the wheat from the chaff or the wheat from the tares, if you're King James. This is is how they would do it. Throughout Scripture, the threshing floor is a place of separation and identification. Jesus will use this in the New Testament. Uh, Paul will use the New Testament throughout the Old Testament, referencing to the threshing floor. Which is when you separate good from evil. Throughout the Old Testament into the New Testament, the chaff, the tares would be associated with evil. The good, the wheat, would be associated with good. So, what's going on behind what's going on is that. The author of Ruth is telling us this is a season, a place of separation. They would winnow, they would throw it up and that would happen. Then they would thresh. So either the servants would stomp on it and stomp out whatever was left over. They would bring oxen in to stomp on the wheat to get out whatever didn't need to be there before they could make it into bread or whatever they were using the grain for. This is the threshing floor. At the end of the harvest, the owner of the field uh, most likely would come down to the threshing floor, he would watch what was happening, and then he would spend the night there to make sure that no thieves came in to take what they had rightfully harvested and then separated. So he and maybe some other people would come and would spend the night there. Naomi tells Ruth, tonight is the night that Boaz will be down on the threshing floor. It's the end of the season. I know how this works. The owner of the field, Boaz, will be at the threshing floor. Verse 3. "'Wash, therefore, and anoint yourself.'" Some of your translations say to put on perfume. "'Put on your cloak and go down to the threshing floor.'" Now, again, if we're reading this in the wrong context, through the wrong filter, what you're picturing is, hey, Ruth, Ruth, Ruth is trying to look good and smell good for Boaz. Is that what you're, don't we do that? You're like, she's putting on the perfume, um, She's, she's getting dressed in something that would allure him to her. And so that, that's the way we picture it. That's not what's happening here, based on the whole of Scripture and the language being used. If you remember, uh, David, King David commits adultery with Bathsheba. Um, God uh, gives them a son, but the son passes away. David mourns, and he mourns over the passing away of this son. But there's a moment in which David arises. Once the son is dead, he arises and he showers And he anoints himself and then puts on clothes. Does this sound familiar to you? What this denotes is that Ruth has ended her period of mourning over the loss of her husband. And now she is stepping into a new season. She's not trying to seduce Boaz, but she is saying, I'm available. Make sense? She's not being seductive, but she is saying, I'm stepping into a new season. Go down to the threshing floor. She says, but do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. After the harvest and after the winnowing and the threshing, there will probably be a party of celebration. And so she says, so after the party, make yourself known. Verse four, when he lies down, observe the place where he lies. Underline that, remember it, because she has to make sure she gets the right man. Look where he lies. Remember where he is lying. Then go, uncover his feet, and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. And she replied, Ruth replied to Naomi, all that you say I will do. And so she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. When Boaz had eaten and drunk, he had not become drunk, he had just drank. Does that make sense? Don't read that into this. He's not drunk. We know the character of Boaz. Boaz doesn't seem like his character to eat and get drunk and pass out on the threshing room floor, the threshing floor. This is him eating and drinking. That's all. After he has eaten and after he has uh, drunk, his heart was merry and he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. Then she, Ruth, came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. And at midnight, the man was startled and turned over and behold, a woman lay at his feet women were not allowed on the threshing floor. And that's not because they didn't think they were able, but for their safety and protection. Really awful things happen on the threshing floor overnight, particularly in the time of the judges. Boaz, a man of character as we know him, would not have allowed this to happen. So he is surprised. There's a woman laying at his feet, at his feet denoting humility, at his feet. And he said, who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Now, pay attention to this line. Spread your wings over your servant. Underline that, circle it, highlight it. We're gonna come back to it. For you are a redeemer. And he, Boaz, said, may you be blessed by the Lord. Remember, this is Boaz's greeting. We saw this in Ruth chapter two. This is who he is. May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first and that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask. For all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. And now it is true that I am a redeemer. Things are going great. And then he says this, yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. Now, if you're watching this on the movie screen or on on your TV, this is the moment when you're like, what? Because things were going great, right? They, they had walked through this season of famine. They had been wanting. They needed food. They needed family. Then as luck would have it last week and last week's episode, she meets Boaz and things seem like they're really looking up. He's a kinsman redeemer. He owns this field God has provided. And so now she's gonna make this move into, would you be my redeemer? Would you cover me? Would you care for me? And so she makes this move saying, I'm available to be cared for. And he says, I love that. There's a problem. There's actually someone who is closer in relationship to you than I am. The law would have told us that it had to be the next closest of kin that could step in, had the right to be the kinsman redeemer. And Boaz is saying, I wish it was me, but there's someone else. 13, he says, remain tonight... And in the morning, if he, if this other redeemer will redeem you, good. Let him do it. That is the law. We know the character of Boaz. If if that's what God has, then good. But we can trust it. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. That's emphatic in the Hebrew. I will do it. So lie down until the morning. You can imagine she didn't sleep well that night. Uh, she's picturing all the things that could be. Who is this next redeemer? Who is this man? Will I, Will he care for me like it seems that Boaz will? Verse 14, she lay at his feet until morning, but, she, but arose before one could recognize another, before they could recognize each other. The Hebrew says, makes it sound like before dawn, before there was daylight. And he said, Boaz says, let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. And he said, bring me the garment that you are wearing. And hold it out. And so she held it, and he measured out six measures of barley and put it on her, and she went into the city. Holds out her cloak, would have been kind of the size of like a twin sheet. Holds it out, he gives her six measures of barley. We don't know, measures is generic, we don't know. But it seems like it could have been close to 90 pounds of barley. And we've learned a lot about Ruth's physical fitness already and that she's carried 45 pounds back to the city, and now she's carrying even more, but this has already been threshed. It's good, good grain. Then we get to verse 16. Ruth comes home, and again, Ruth has been home, or Naomi's been home all night, probably not sleeping well, wondering what's happening. How has it gone? She understands the danger of a woman on the threshing floor. She's hopeful from what she knows of the character of Boaz, but I, I I can't imagine what's gone through her mind. Ruth comes home in verse 16, and when she came to her mother-in-law, Naomi, the mother-in-law said, how did you fare, my daughter? How did it go? She told her all that the man had done for her. Verse 17, saying, these six measures of barley. This is how she ends the story. And these six measures of barley he gave to me, for he said to me. The author hadn't told us what he said before, but now she's he, going to tell us what the author, what, uh, Boaz said, he said to me, you must not go back, underline this, empty-handed to your mother-in-law. You must not go back empty-handed. Verse 18, Naomi replies, just wait, my daughter. Ruth had told her all that had happened, how there's another kinsman redeemer who is closer, and she says, just wait until you learn how the matter turns out. For the man, Boaz, will not rest, circle that, underline it, we'll come back to it, will not rest, but will settle the matter today. I know you're anxious, just be patient. We know the character of Boaz. If he said he's going to settle it, he's going to settle this today. Okay, now, I wanna go back into it, but I want us to think about Boaz now. I know the book is called Ruth, let's talk about Boaz. Boaz is not God. And he is not meant to be some kind of type of God or Redeemer. He's, in, in this book of Ruth, the point is not that Boaz is like God and we should be like Ruth. Because in that, you get all sorts of distorted theology. That's not the point. Boaz is not God. But Boaz is the image of God. Just like you and I are the image of God. Genesis 1:27, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So when I want to walk back through this. Please hear me. Boaz is not God. He's not playing the role of God. He is the image of God. He's the image of God. We might even say in New Testament language, he is the body of Christ. He is, he is the picture of God to the world. Boaz is not God. I'm not saying that. I'm not saying Boaz is the hero What I'm saying is that he is in the image of God. He has been created to function and live like God would. So go back to verse nine of Ruth chapter three. Boaz wakes up. uh, The wind has come onto his uh, bare legs. And like that moment when your kids come in the middle of the night and they just stand over your face, breathing their hot, gross breath on you. And you wake up and their eyes are right there. Then you say words, and then you say, don't say those words, and that happens. This is what's happened right here. He wakes up, and he's like, well, who are you? Verse 9, and she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. And then she says, spread your wings over your servant. Some of your translations will say, spread the corner of your garment, or spread the edge of your skirt over your servant, is what some of yours would say. This is a euphemism, uh, the idea, and even today, in some Hebrew, some Jewish weddings, Um, The edge of the husband's cloak would be extended over the wife to give a picture of protection and care. In the New Testament, um, uh, there's talk about there's power even in the edges of the cloak of Jesus and in Peter's, even in the shadow. This is the idea. So Old Testament idea And in fact, this is how a man would say, yes, I am taking you as my wife. So that's what's happening here. But the language is the wings. Spread your wings. That's that's the language. Great. Ruth chapter two, verse 12. Boaz says this when he meets Ruth. He says, may the Lord repay you for what you have done and a full reward be given you by the Lord. May he repay and reward. We talked about that a few weeks ago last week. The God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Are you picking up what I'm putting down? Ruth 2.12, Boaz says, may the Lord repay and reward you by the wings that he has spread over you. Take refuge in his wings. Ruth says, spread your wings over me. What Ruth is saying to Boaz is, remember that prayer you prayed for me, that the Lord would repay and reward me for what I have done? You are the answer to your own prayer. He says, God, would you repay, would you reward by by your wings, spread your wings over her? And then Ruth says, it's time that you answer the very prayer you prayed for me. So the question for us is, well, what happens when you are the answer to your own prayers? Because we're really good at praying that God would send someone, that God would intervene, that God would provide. But what happens when you are the answers to the prayers you've been praying? What happens? Again, you're not God. I'm not God. But we've been created in the image of God. We are a conduit of God's blessing. So there are times when we will have prayed and prayed and prayed, and the whole time God is saying, spread your wings. It's you. I've put you there to answer that prayer. Not him, not her, not them, not the government. You. I've placed you. So what, what happens when we are the answer to our prayers What happens? Well, there's even more evidence of that. Look at verse 17 of Ruth 3. Boaz said to Ruth, "Um, you must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. Back in Ruth chapter 1, verse 21, uh, Naomi comes back into Bethlehem and says, I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. And what Boaz says is, may she not be empty anymore. So what happens? What happens when we are the answers to the prayers we've been praying? What happens? Truth is this. God plans his providence to be performed by his people. Want to know how God provides and governs his creation? Through you and me. That's how. Now, there are seasons of divine intervention where things miraculously happen, but more often than not, you'll see it in Scripture, you'll see it in your own life, the way that God provides for his people is through through us, through you and through me. Ephesians 2.10, Acts 17, God has placed us in certain places to perform good works. He's determined the boundary places and the times in which we would live, so that people might find God, although he's not far from any of them. The truth of the matter is that the things you've been praying for, for somebody else, you might just be the answer to. You might just be the answer to that. But what we like to do as Christians is we like to say, oh, that's awful, I'll pray for you. Which is great, we should pray for people. But James 2, James, the half-brother of Jesus, says this. He says, what good is it, brothers, If someone says he has faith but does not have works, can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to him, go in peace, be warm and be filled, or or says to him, go, I'll pray for you. Without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Here's the line. I'm not God, you're not God, but we are created in his image. And we are the hands and feet of the body of Christ. What Ruth is saying to Boaz is, you're the answer to the prayer. Spread out your wings. You are my kinsman redeemer. Cover me, protect me, and care for me. God plans his providence to be performed by his people. So have you, have we, Have we been faithful to this provision, the providence of God? Or do we fall back on, well, I'll pray for you. Again, let's pray for people. But if someone needs a warm meal and you have a kitchen to make them a warm meal, make them a warm meal. Don't pray about it. If someone needs clothes and you have a closet full of clothes, give them a coat. Don't have to pray about it. But we so often like to spiritualize things and we like to push responsibility away from ourselves, from from what we have been given and we push it onto other people. Fathers, we are the worst at this. It's you, it's me. We are the redeemers of our household, it's us. It's not up to the youth pastor. It's not up to the wife, it's not up to the pastor. It's not up to a teacher or a coach, it's you. God, would you please just? Would you please make yourself known to my son? Teach him how to study the Bible. And so you drop him off on Wednesday nights. No, no, no. You do it. What if you are the answers to the prayers for your children? What if it's you? What if it's you? To be a kinsman redeemer, uh, there were three things that you needed to have. You needed to have the right. Which meant you, need, you needed to be the closest of kin. You need to have the right, the resources, and the resolve need to have all three of these to be a kinsman redeemer. We'll see in the next chapter someone uh, who is the next closest redeemer. And the question is, to this man, do you have these three things? We need to have the right. So how do you have the right to be a redeemer? How do you have the right to participate in the providence of God to his people? 1 Peter 2.9 says this. To You, us followers of Jesus, we are a chosen race, a royal priesthood. Old Testament, a priest, the main role of a priest was to show the world what God is like. That's what a priest does. A priest is a picture of God to the world. In the Old Testament, that was reserved for a group of of men who would literally do that, who would execute God's plans and commands on behalf of God to his people. In the New Testament, if you're a follower of Jesus, you are now a priest. We have a responsibility. We have a right. How do I know that I have a right to be the kinsman redeemer of those in my circle? How do I know that I am the answer to the prayers that I've been praying for people? Because I am part of a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a people for his own possession, that you might proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. How do you know if you have the right? Are you a follower of Jesus? You have the right. And the responsibility. You are the next closest of kin. You have it. You're it. You're it. I'm it. Secondly, I think inside of the right, though, we need to be a pure people. Notice Boaz's interactions. Think through what could have happened on the threshing floor and think through how Boaz responded. You want to know how we step into redeeming, how we step into the ministry of reconciliation, how how we participate in the providence of God is that we have to be a pure people. And there are seasons of my life where I was not qualified to redeem anyone. We have to be a pure people. And we have to have relationship. The reason Boaz could redeem Ruth was because he knew Ruth. He was with Ruth. He, how did he know Ruth? Because he was working. He was where he needed to be. So we have the right. Secondly, what about the resources? Do we have the resources to be a kinsman redeemer? Well, Boaz had the resources because he was obedient to a command all the way back from Deuteronomy about his field. He left the corners, the edges of his field for the sojourner, the traveler, and the needy. And because he did that, because he left the edges of his field for someone who was traveling, he had the resources for Ruth and therefore he could be the redeemer. He had the right, he's in the family, he has relationship, and he has resources. He left the corners of the field. He prepared to be a redeemer by being obedient. Do you want to be a redeemer? Do you want to be used by God to bring his goodness to the world? Well, you have the right. Do you have the resources? And how do we get resources? We have to build margin into our lives. We have to have the resource, we have to have the margin. We have to have the margin financially. And I'm not gonna sit up here and give you a financial lecture because I'm not the one to do it. But we have to have the financial margin, which is why the Bible is clear on tithing. It's why. You don't think that the owners of fields looked out on their field and says, man, that how much more would I make if I harvested everything? Have you ever done that? If you give, have you ever looked at your budget and be like, man, that, I could really use that somewhere else. Anybody ever done that? Just me, all right. You ever looked at your budget and says that could, I could, that could be used somewhere else. We could go out to dinner a couple more times. I could, I could invest that. That could uh, be a car payment. Whatever it is, you, you look at it. This is why we build margin financially, not to be good people, not to say we've done it, not to be disciplined, but because when we have margin, we can be a redeemer. We have to build margin financially. I think we have to build margin into our time, into our schedule. We have to have margin to be with people and to act as a redeemer, to be the conduit by which God redeems. We have to have margin. If you don't have time for people, if you don't have time for your kids because you're too busy taking them to travel ball or you're, you're too busy at work or you're too busy in the yard, if you don't have time for your kids, you don't have the resources to redeem them. Finances. We have to have margin with our time and we have to have margin with our talent, with the gifts God's given us. Men, we cannot spend all of our talent at the place that pays our salary. We have to leave some margin in our talent, in our giftedness for this, for the ministry of redemption. We have to have the right have to have the resources, and finally, you have to have the resolve, the want to, the desire, and the grit that gets you through these seasons. Because being this, stepping in as a kinsman redeemer, stepping into what God has called us to be is not for the faint of heart. It's not something you... um, post about on Instagram or TikTok. It's not not that, right? It's not the best parts of your life. This is gritty, grimy work that takes resolve. And so we look at Boaz and it's the same way that we look at professional athletes like, oh man, that's amazing. I'm going to do that. But you don't see the ways that they are um, eating differently than you eat, uh, the ways that they are working out differently than you work out. The resolve is what gets us through the grit and the grime. Look at verse one of chapter three. Naomi says, my daughter, should I not seek rest for you that it may be well with you? I wanna seek rest for you. And then the author cleverly finishes this chapter with this word in verse 18. She, Naomi, replied, wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest but we'll settle the matter today. You wanna know how we knew Boaz had the resolve? Because he wasn't gonna rest until it was figured out. Do you have the resolve? Do I have the resolve to be the conduit of God's providence to the people closest to me? Do you, have, do you actually want to? Will you give up rest and sleep and finances and talent? Will we give those things up? that we might see many come to faith in Jesus, that we might see our kids and our spouses grow in their faith? Or are we gonna do it? Do we have the resolve? Because here's what I think. I think a lot of us want to be this. I think we do. We've been given the right because we are part of a royal priesthood. And yet, we have some resources because we've been faithful, we've done that. And yet, we don't really want to do the hard work of it. The resolve. The resolve. And there's been this weird, uh, over the past five years or so, this weird push now um, for what's called Sabbath rest. People would Sabbath. And you should. It's biblical. You should Sabbath. You should take rest. You should have days of rest. You should all of those things. The issue for me is, if you're not tired, you've got no reason to rest. The Sabbath was day seven because the first six days was work. Resolve means we've got to work at it. We've got to work at it. So we've been called into this. As a royal priesthood, we've been called into being a kinsman redeemer, which is great. So then the question's for us, well, then how do we do it? Well, let's look at circles. Who is closest to you that needs something that you've been praying for that you could actually answer their prayer? That you might be the answer to their prayer. Your kids crying out for identity aren't going to find it with their friends. They're going to find it by the way that you speak to them, mom and dad. You. You are the answers to the prayers for your children. You pray that God would protect their hearts and then you give them unfiltered access to a phone. It's you. Guard their hearts their hearts teach them about Jesus teach them the Bible sit down with them about your spouse what about the people that you work with and go to school with and play ball with what about them I would I would I would imagine this that if the sovereignty and providence of God placed you in their lives he very well might have placed you in their lives with the right to redeem them you have the resources and the resolve? And here's what's beautiful about this entire passage, that it gets even bigger than just that, because it's more than just immediate. Back in Genesis chapter 19, a similar thing happened. I think the author of of this in Ruth wants us to see this and pick up on what's happening. Genesis chapter 19, Abraham and his nephew Lot have chosen different portions of land that God has promised to them. Lot chooses what seems to be the good portion. Uh, Then Sodom and Gomorrah happens, uh, Lot is running away. His wife turns into a pillar of salt. And so he is left now with his two daughters. His sons-in-law uh, have, been, have been killed, so he's just left with his two daughters. And they're in a foreign land, which should sound a little familiar to you for the book of Ruth. And they're running. Ruth, or Genesis chapter 19, verse 30, says that Lot went up to Zoar, which means little, and he lived in the hills with his two daughters, for he was afraid to live in Zoar, which says all we need to know about Lot. Uh, and he lived in a cave with his two daughters. 31. Then the firstborn daughter said to the younger daughter, Our father is old, and there is not a man on earth to come into us after the manner of all the earth. What she's saying is, we don't have any prospects for husbands. Our father is getting old, and the name of our family will die with us. And that's just a complete faux pas. And so she, she says, let's do something. Verse 32 Come, let us make our father drink wine. Let him eat and drink, pay attention, drink wine, and we will lie with him. How many times we read the word lie in Ruth chapter 3? We will lie with him for this reason, that we may preserve offspring from our father. So the oldest daughter says, hey, what if to continue the family line, um, we do so with our father? After he eats and drinks, we'll go into him. Verse 33, they made their father drink wine that night. And the firstborn went in and lay with her father. And he did not know, this sounds familiar, when he lay down or when she arose. Dark place, <clears throat> secluded. A man who eats and drinks, falls asleep. And a woman who comes in unknowingly. Do you see the parallel to Ruth chapter three? But the difference here is that this does go the way that our minds thought the first one would go. The next day, the firstborn said to the younger, Behold, I lay last night with my father. Let us make him drink wine tonight also. And then you go in and lie with him that we may preserve offspring from our father. Again, they want to continue the line. Naomi wants to continue the line of her family. So they made their father drink wine that night. Also the younger arose and lay with him. He did not know when she lay down or when she arose. Thus, both the daughters of Lot became pregnant by their father. Then pay attention to verse 37. The firstborn bore a son and called his name Moab. He is the father of the Moabites to this day. So what happened in Ruth chapter 3 to the original hearers would have been The same picture of Genesis chapter 19. And they're wondering, Moabite women, we know how they are. We know how this all began. They're by themselves in the dark of night in a field. He has eaten and drank and he lays down, doesn't even know there's a woman there. What's going to happen? Well, the kinsman redeemer, Boaz, he puts an end to the legacy that was. And he redeems in that moment. You know what happens when you and I are at the threshing floor? There's a moment. Are we gonna pursue good or pursue evil? To pursue good is to be a conduit of God's blessing for those in our circle. What happens if you're the answer to the prayers you've been praying? Go bow your heads and close your eyes and I'll wrap us up today. I don't know uh, where you find yourself today. But I, I don't want to miss this fact. I don't want any, want any of us to miss it today. The places you've been placed, places you go to school and the places you work and the kids you have and the spouse you have, the singleness that you have, it's not an accident. it's by appointment. And there's coming a moment on the threshing floor where you have to decide: will this be the pursuit of good or the pursuit of evil? And if you're a follower of Jesus, you have the right to redeem. And if you've been faithful in your walk, you have the resources to redeem. The question is, do you have the resolve to redeem? Because if Boaz does this, and he's older, he marries this younger woman who wants to have children. This isn't just some decision he makes, right? This is, this is a lifetime. It's my prayer for us that we have the resolve to participate in the providence of God and that we stop pushing it off on other people and we start stepping into what God has called us to be, given us the right to be, the resources to be, and that we might have the resolve to be that. Maybe you're here this morning and you don't know a Jesus like that. You don't know a Jesus who redeems. You just know uh, stories of a Jesus who condemns He's not like that. There's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And so maybe you've missed opportunities to redeem. Maybe you've, you've walked in seasons where you weren't fit to do so. Praise the Lord for his grace and redemption and restoration. If you wanna follow Jesus and know what he is like, just give your heart to him to admit that you are a savior in need of a sinner. You believe that Jesus is that savior that you confess him as Lord of your life and you fall under his authority. You will find life there. Father, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for uh, the good news of the gospel, even in the book of Ruth. And I thank you that you have not just given us good news that it might end with us, but that it might roll and flow through us. As your hands and feet, as a kinsman redeemer, as the conduit of your goodness and redemption, God, help us. Give us the resolve to be what you've called us to be. And may our families be changed. May our legacies be changed. May our community be changed because of the faithfulness of your people inside of your plans of providence. God, we, uh, we aren't the hero you are, but you've invited us in. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.